Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, understanding who he is and how he uh, affects and how he works in our lives as believers, as followers of Christ. And so, again, we are in week two. Uh, if you missed week one, we really kind of just emphasized a, kind of a very basic understanding of what Scripture reveals about the Spirit, uh, that he is not an it or an energy like the force from Star Wars, but he is a person and he is God. Not only is he a person and God, part of the Godhead, the Trinity, we also understood that the Spirit is the author and illuminator of the Word of God. That the Word of God was authored by the Spirit as he moved upon the men that wrote these words. They did not become robots that were just you know, unaware, unaware of what they were doing. They got superintended by the work of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit upon these men, and they wrote the words of God, God using their own personality, their own uniqueness in every way. This is why when you read a letter from the Apostle John and you read a letter from the Apostle Paul, even in how they write, their style of writing, you can see a difference there. Uh, this is why in Scripture we have really the greatest collection, 66 books, the greatest collection of literature in the world. And I don't mean just because it's inspired and the Word of God. I mean because the type of literature we see, everything from poetry to historical narrative to historical documents that we find in First Kings and Second Kings to the Gospels and the life of Christ that we see revealed there, the stories, the parables that Jesus spoke were some of the greatest stories ever told, even in today's understanding of that. And so it is an amazing gift, the Word of God. And the Spirit authored the Word of God, was superintending these authors as they penned the words, but also the Spirit is the illuminator of the Word of God. What does that mean? That He opens our mind to the Word of God in Christ. That I cannot understand this Word without the Spirit's work through Christ. Now, we can understand the grammar, we can understand the words, meaning what the words mean, but we will never understand the spiritual meaning of the Word of God without the Spirit's working in our hearts and minds. And this is why if you watch maybe shows or documentaries or things of that nature that are secular in nature, meaning they're not Christian. Uh, this is kind of well seen with things like the History Channel when they do certain documentaries or certain things and, and you hear these religious experts get on and talk about what this or that means and you not being a scholar, not being somebody that went to school for all these years, just a follower of Christ, you read the text, you hear what they say and you go, that's not what the text means at all. They missed it. We shouldn't be surprised by that because if they don't know Christ, they're going to miss it. They're, ju they're just going to miss it. And we're not talking about difference of opinion on a passage or maybe a difference of opinion on a minor area of Scripture. I'm talking about key things the Bible teaches. God is creator. God is sustainer. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was virgin born. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. These are basic tenets of Christianity. And these religious experts, you hear them talk and they, they miss it. They blow it. And we shouldn't be surprised because they don't have the teacher. They don't have the teacher like you do in Christ. Isn't it amazing to realize you have the Spirit of God indwelling you at the moment of salvation? And we're going to talk about that probably next week, what that term indwelling means. What does it mean the Spirit seals us? What does it mean that the Spirit fills us? We're going to talk about some of those terms we hear used about the Spirit both in Scripture and out of Scripture. And again, we're going to talk about maybe you've been taught some things about what those terms mean, and Scripture is going to reveal to us that's not exactly what they mean. They mean more, or maybe even a different way of what you understood. But you have the Spirit of God in you. He indwells you. You have the teacher. The same Spirit that moved upon the Apostle Paul is the same Spirit you have living in you in Christ. And so when you're reading the letter to the church at Rome and you're reading the book of Romans and, and you're reading the words, the same teacher that moved upon Paul is moving upon you to give you wisdom and understanding. Not revelation in the sense of brand new stuff. It's already been revealed. That's why we use the word illumination. People will say, well, God revealed this to me. And then you have them unpack that a little bit. And it's like, well, I was reading in scripture and I never saw this in the verse before. I understand what they mean, and I, I get it. And maybe this is just me being a little, I don't know, splitting some hairs here. But to me, I think that word makes a big difference. God revealed, and God gave me revelation in this. 
God illuminated my mind, enlightened me to this understanding, versus God gave me something brand new that no one's ever seen before. If it's in the word of God, it's already been revealed. It's already been given as revelation, but we didn't understand it yet for whatever reason. Maybe we weren't in a position in Christ where we were going to understand it. Maybe we needed to grow through some things or God needed to get us to a place where the spirit was able to open our minds to what's been revealed. So we have an amazing, beautiful, wonderful treasure in the spirit of God given to us. And we should praise God for him. We should praise God that the Spirit of God lives in us to enlighten our minds to the Word of God. Why? So that we might understand how to live this life for the glory of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful treasure. As I said last week, some of you grew up in churches where the Spirit was not talked about. Maybe passing here or there wasn't emphasized. Some of you grew up in churches where it was every service, every Sunday, all the time. It was the Spirit all the time. And so I understand in a church like this, you're going to have a lot of different backgrounds coming in, a lot of different traditions in in church coming together. Some of them are fine. They're just, they're not right or wrong. It's just what your church tradition was. Some things that have been taught about the spirit, I believe, grieve the spirit. We talked about some of the extreme kind of nonsensical things we've seen demonstrated in media and things of those lines. But also some of us have been unable to really understand what the Spirit's been doing. So let me understand that, unpack that a little bit. Just because you grew up in a church that didn't talk about the Spirit doesn't mean the Spirit wasn't working in you. Okay? It's, it's not like the Spirit's like, well, I really want to move in this person's life, but the pastor hasn't preached on me yet, so I can't really do much. That's not how the Spirit works. So if you grew up in a church where you're like, man, they never talked about the Holy Spirit, don't, don't think for a second you didn't have him in Christ. You had him fully and completely in your salvation. It's just maybe our understanding of what he was doing already was limited. And again, not to fault anyone. It's just difference of churches that we grew up in. This morning, as we're continuing our series through the Holy Spirit in your bulletin, there is a, an insert in there if you'd like to take notes. Um, please note on there, though, I, somebody told me last week, because I started both points with he is. Somebody started on back, which is number two, Roman numeral two. And they started filling in and they got really confused, like point one, because they were like, that's not what he, what? That's not what it says. So just make sure we're on number one. Roman numeral one is where we're going to start. So that's the front. Turn it over. Roman numeral two is the back. Okay. So just want to make sure you note that. And I think I started them differently. So I thought that would help you guys out a little bit. Okay. I don't want to be confusing. But this morning, as we're continuing our series through the Holy Spirit, again, I pray and my prayer praying for this series for weeks now was that we would encounter truth from his word that would draw us to praise, that we would encounter truth from the word of God by the moving of the spirit that would draw us to praise, to draw us to giving glory. God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What a powerful and amazing invitation that Jesus gives us in John chapter four, that in Christ we can worship the father anytime in any place Because we have received the truth of the gospel and have been set free. You can worship God anytime, any place, because you've received the truth that Jesus spoke of there. If you want to worship the Father, you worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit. It's not about a location. It's about a relationship. The spirit of God gives us the ability that now we are the temples of the living God. So now where we go, the spirit goes. And we can worship anywhere we go. At any time. You don't have to walk into this building to worship God. You don't have to be sitting in that seat to hear from the word of God. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't want us gathering, want us coming together. Um, I've always been amazed in recent years. It's been this phrase I've heard. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I've said it many times. That's true. But very true. Praise God, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Praise God, it's not as something so shallow. It's more than that. Christ died for me, receiving him, he holds on to me, not my ability to attend a service. And it's true, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also don't have to go home to be married. Some of you are like, thank you for that get-out-of-jail-free card. Praise the Lord. The pastor said, I ain't got to show up, honey. I'll see you in two weeks. Click. But let me ask you, if you were married to someone or are married to someone, and you decided to, you know what, I don't have to go home to be married. Just think for a second how that would affect your relationship with that person. 
Would you be growing in that relationship? Would you be showing your love and for them? Well, here's the thing. We have a relationship with Christ. We know him. That's sealed by the cross and the, and the finished work. We don't do anything to add to that. We gather as the body of Christ to express that love that we've received of Christ one to another. To serve one another. To use our gifts and talents for the glory of God and his church. To build up the church. So that we might express worship to him collectively. And I just want to pause here and say there is nowhere in the New Testament you can show me where it was normal for a believer or it was encouraged to a believer to avoid the gathering with the body. It's not there. You might say, well, the Bible doesn't say I got to go to church. Well, it does say forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But see, we, we, we live in a Christian culture. This isn't even in the notes. This is all free. Just sit back and enjoy. This is... We live in a Christian culture where we've taken convenience and we've made that really our God. And I'll worship and I'll go and I'll serve, I'll teach, I'll do whatever, as long as I don't have something else more important going on. As long as my plans work out, as long as it's convenient. So this is not about making anyone feel bad about going to church. It's about just expressing the reality that when we gather as the body of Christ... The spirit of God begins to work in you and now you can minister to someone else. This morning, we're going to experience that a little bit. Uh, we're going to have a time of prayer at the end for someone and, and we get to do that together as the body of Christ. What a great blessing it is to be able to gather. But the reality is when you're at your barbecue tomorrow or you're with family today or you're out in the yard doing whatever you're doing, God is with you. You can worship him there just like you worship him here. When you're in your office this week and your manager's annoying you or your boss is bugging you or you got a deadline you don't really think you're going to get done, you have a choice to make. Am I going to worship? Am I going to praise him for this opportunity, this job, this, this moment he's given me to make a difference for Christ? Or am I going to complain about this or that person? See, because you can worship anywhere because God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you've received the truth of Christ, the gospel, you can worship him anywhere. You've been set free. This morning, we're going to be unpacking the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Now, let me preface it with this. This is something we could spend weeks and weeks on just this. Uh, there was classes I took in college that we would spend semesters unpacking all the different ramifications of this. So obviously, we're not going to be exhaustive in 25, 30 minutes. Some of you are like, whoa, it's 1120, 2025. Okay, we're good. You just did some math in your head. You're fine. You're like, I just want to get out in the yard. I know. I'm, I'm anxious too to get to work. It's going to be great. 85 degrees and sweating. That's going to be beautiful. So we're not going to unpack, obviously, every aspect of this. But I want to give you a baseline of the amazing work of the Spirit in salvation. The Spirit is vital in us repenting of our sin and confessing Christ as Lord. And we have to get this. Without the Spirit, we cannot be saved. Without the Spirit, you cannot be saved. It's not you might be saved. You cannot receive the pardon of sins without the working of the Spirit. We do not come to Christ on our own as though we were able to, be able, or able to understand the truth of the gospel. We unpacked that a few weeks back. We are inherently sinful. We have all fallen. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. We've all missed the mark. We've all sinned and have a sin nature. We, none of us, pursue the things of God naturally. So how in the world could we possibly gain an understanding of the truth of the gospel and the need of salvation? It is by the working of the Spirit. And we should praise God for that. We should be so thankful that God did not leave us where we were, but uses, as it were, the Word of God and the Spirit of God working together to bring us to salvation. Remember last week we discovered that there's the Spirit of God that illuminates our minds to the Word just as He grants us an understanding of our sin and our need for grace. And so look at John chapter 16. We're going to go back to a text that we read just a little bit of. Last week we read a lot of verses from John. But John chapter 16, verse 7, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, there in the seats, there are some Bibles. You can just turn to page 758. 758, John chapter 16. 
So as you go to God's word there, John chapter 16, we'll start in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Let's pray and ask God to affirm these truths. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray that as we go through this study this morning, that you give us wisdom and understanding. Help us have clarity of mind, that we might apply the truths that we learn by your grace. Father, help us to go through this morning with a heart ready to praise, ready to receive what you have for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in us at the moment that we received Christ. Thank you also for working in those that we've witnessed to, that we've shared the gospel with, that maybe have not repented and turned from their sin, but you are working in them. So we thank you even for the unseen works that you're doing in hearts and minds all around us. And we ask that, again, Lord God, that you would be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see, if you will, a summary work of the Spirit. Jesus is talking about one of the aspects of what the Spirit's work will be. This is not all the Spirit will do, but this is a summary work of really the Spirit's work in salvation. So I want to unpack that a little bit further to understand that he is the agent of salvation in the world today. He is the agent of salvation in the world today as he, that first point there in your notes, convicts the world of sin. Convicts the world of sin. Now, if you've followed the text, you can go ahead and probably fill in the other couple, letter B and letter C there, or you can just wait and pretend to be surprised. It's up to you. But in the text, it's pretty clear. We see the outline really comes right from the text. What does the Spirit do? Well, he convicts the world. And what does he convict the world of? Well, the first thing he does is convict the world of sin. In the King James, in uh, verse 8, it says, When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. If you have a different translation, you might have a different word there. The word reprove is where we get the idea of convicting or convincing to convince or to convict someone of a truth. In a legal sense, this word is used to bring to light, to expose, to refute, to convict and convince. And I love the definition there of to bring to light. To bring something to light, to bring this truth. It's been there all along, but it's been hidden in the shadows. And now the work of the Spirit brings this to light, makes it visible, makes it knowable. And that's what the Spirit is doing. Another way you could translate this would be to translate it, pronounce the verdict. To pronounce the verdict. When the Spirit says, I'm gonna, he's going to come, he's going to reprove the world. He's going to announce a verdict. He's going to convict of something. He's going to convince of something. And what is he convincing of? He is convincing and convicting of sin. Bringing upon unredeemed humanity, unredeemed meaning those outside of Christ, bringing upon unredeemed humanity the awareness of sin, we are unable to naturally see the weight of our sin. We need the Spirit to bring upon us the awareness of our sin. We need the Spirit working in us because we cannot understand sin, the weight of sin, the consequence of sin. What it really means. And by the way, how guilty we are. In our men's Bible study, we finished up this week. We went a little longer uh, than the ladies, a couple weeks longer than the ladies. I don't know if that's because we're more spiritual or less spiritual. I'm not sure. I haven't figured that out yet. Do we need more work or were we just going more deep? I think we probably needed more work. That's why we had the extra two weeks. But, but we were just talking about this in our last men's Bible study about sin in the world today. And how we... Uh, someone put it like this, we put dollar amounts on sin. Uh, some sin are really small dollar amounts. Some sin are really big dollar amounts. And we, we gauge it that way in our world today. We think this is a really bad sin. Anyone who does this is really evil, really bad. But these little sins, that's not a big deal. No big deal. See, we, humanly speaking, do not understand the, the magnitude of sin and our guilt before God. That we deserve hell. That we do in no way, shape, or form deserve heaven. 
We do not deserve in any way, shape, or form to enter his heaven on our own good works. We are wretched. I know you think, man, I I don't like hearing that kind of stuff. That's why we need the spirit. Because humanly speaking, we we gauge it, we weigh it out. Even the Pharisees in Jesus' day, what did they say? Hey, Jesus, what's the biggest commandment? What's the most important commandment? Because even in that day, what they were doing was they were weighing out the commandments. These are little ones, we can disobey those. But these big ones, we got to keep. And then we'll show everyone how we're keeping these. But really, in secret, we're not keeping these. But that's okay, because those are minor ones. We keep the big ones. And they came to Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? Why? They wanted him to say, it's this, 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 and this, not those. And then they go, great, we don't have to worry about those. But Jesus being the greatest teacher, Jesus being God, said so clearly, Here it is. You want to know all the Old Testament, all the prophets, all the law? It hinges on these two key truths from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all of you, basically, and love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what the law says? Here, let me summarize it for you. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? The moral commands of God, the Ten Commandments that we are praise God, we don't have to keep them to be saved, but we're under them in the sense that God wants us to be moral and do those things to honor him. It becomes really easy to honor my mother and father when I love God with all of me and I love my neighbor as myself. It becomes really easy to not covet my neighbor's goods when I love God with all of me. I'm satisfied in him and then I love my neighbor as myself. I'm not going to want to covet my neighbor's goods or my neighbor's possessions, if you will. Now, I'm not going to commit murder when I love God with all of me and I love my neighbor as myself. Do you see how Jesus, being the greatest teacher, hinged it so well? This is how it is. And by the way, by that same standard, we realize, apart from Christ, we are guilty beyond belief. We are guilty beyond belief. Well, I've never committed adultery. Jesus said, if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Well, I've never killed anyone. If you have hatred in your heart towards someone, Jesus said you've committed murder against them. That's two of the ones that even our culture would say, those are big ones. And we've all violated it. To one degree or another. I mean, the Bible says, the law says, don't bear false witness. That means don't lie. Have you ever lied? If you've ever lied, you're not someone who struggles with lying. You're a liar. The Bible says, don't steal. You ever take something that wasn't yours? If the answer is yes, you're a lying thief. You're not someone who struggles with lying and sort of struggles with stealing. That's just two of the easy ones. Those are the little ones. And if you somehow are not affected by those four examples, James says if you've offended in one area, you've offended in all. You broke one of the commandments, you've guilty of all the law. You see, this is why we need the Spirit of God to bring conviction on the world because we naturally will not see it. So what is the sin the Spirit convicts us of? Notice in the verse there, it doesn't say in verse 9, of sins, plural, says of sin. So it is not singular sins that is being spoken of here primarily. Although the Spirit, as we just explained, does convict of sins, plural, by the working of the law of God and the conscience of men given to us by God in creation. Here, the sin, singular, mentioned is the sin of unbelief. Because it is ultimately the sin of unbelief in Christ that condemns the lost sinner. John three eighteen through 21. It is ultimately the sin of unbelief in Christ that condemns the lost sinner. So many people in the world think this. Well, I I shouldn't go to hell because I'm not a bad person. Well, why aren't you a bad person? Because I've never done this. And they name a sin. We think that all the time. But the reality is, do you know Christ? Well, I've not received Christ as my Savior. Then that's the sin of unbelief. That's why you're going to be cast away. All the other sins are just a byproduct of that original choice. To deny Christ means to deny the truth of God's word, which means you're not living in obedience to his law. Therefore, you'll have other sin issues. The greatest sin, the worst sin, is the sin of unbelief. It is truly a sin that if you die in unbelief, you die apart from Christ, there's no second chance. There's no waiting period. There's no waiting room. There's no purgatory. I know that's been taught. I know that's been taught by some churches. But the Bible is clear. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. See, this life is where we make a decision about what do we believe in Jesus. And if we die without Christ, we will be cast away. But if we die in Christ, we are welcomed as sons and daughters. 
Jesus says it, of sin. Why? Because they believe not on me. Jesus says it also, those that haven't believed are condemned already. But those that have believed, those that have believed have eternal life. So he convicts or convinces us of sin. Secondly, letter B, and whether you filled it in and are going to be surprised or not, I don't know, but of righteousness. Of righteousness. Just curious, who has filled in the other two ones? Righteousness, B and C. There's a hand. Anyone else? Okay. Personalities are being shown here, people. You just, you just revealed some things about yourself. All right. I'm just kidding. Um, of righteousness. I used to do the same thing when I would sit in sermon like at chapel or whatever, I used to think two things. I've grown some. I used to think I could preach that message a lot better than that guy could. Yeah, I know. I was that way when I was like a sophomore in college. Then the Lord humbled me quite a few times, and I was like, oh, no, okay, I can't because it's him, not me. But I also used to figure out what the outline was before he even started. I'd be like, I bet you that's going to be sin. I bet you that's going to be love. You know, I'm trying to guess it. And then me and my friends, we'd sit in an aisle, and after chapel, we'd compare who was right and who was wrong. But anyway, thank you for bearing with me through that moment of confession. I appreciate that. Pray for your preacher. Um, so letter B, of righteousness, of righteousness. So whose righteousness are we being convicted of? Whose righteousness? Well, we know it's not ours. We just established we don't have any. But it is the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ which was on display while he was on earth, but now it is displayed through the Spirit. So the Spirit of Christ displays, the Spirit of God displays the righteousness of Christ. It was on display while Christ was on earth, and people could see that. They could see the righteousness, the standard, and now it is revealed through the Spirit. The Spirit of God reveals the Savior in the Word, and in this way glorifies him. Look at chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for uh, he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Now, verse 16 is interesting. This could be alluding to the second coming. And in Jesus' understanding of time, a little while is, could be for us thousands of years. Or some have thought that this could be Jesus speaking to the disciples, specifically saying, a little while, you're not going to see me. But then soon you will see me because they're going to die a martyr's death. So a couple different ways to look at it here. Um, again, as he ends that with a word of encouragement, we will not be separated long is what he's saying. We will be together again soon. What, a, what amazing comfort for the disciples to hear that. But here we see the spirit of God is convicting the world of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So how does he do this? How does the spirit convict the world of the righteousness of Christ? It is by the working in the heart of the lost, as well as through the lives of believers. The world can see the work of the Spirit in the lives of dedicated believers. So how does the Spirit convict the world of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ? He does it through the hearts, works in the hearts of the lost to bring to their awareness the righteousness of Christ through the Word of God. But also, he does it through the lives of dedicated believers. That as we are surrendered and committed to him, to Christ to the work of the Spirit in our lives, and as we go about our daily lives, they will see the righteousness of Christ. By the way, you have the righteousness of Christ. Amen? It was given to you at the moment of salvation. It was imputed, the Bible says, credited to you. And now that righteousness flows out of you. Now, we're not perfect. And when I say that, you go, but I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. I understand that. But there is the righteousness of Christ in you. And the Spirit takes that and uses that to draw those that don't know Christ to him. So through the word, by the working in their hearts, but also through the lives of dedicated believers. That means you have a role to play. You have a part in this. 
And so when someone comes to Christ and you share the gospel with them and you give them the word of God and the spirit begins to work, it's not just that that's bringing them to that awareness. They also see Christ in you. You know how also they see Christ in you? When you fail and you stumble and you admit and say, no, no, it's not me. I struggle every day. I'm just thankful for the grace of God in me. Those type of moments will display the righteousness of Christ in you. It's not perfection. It's humility and submission to Christ, which again, we're all learning. So he convicts of sin, of righteousness, and letter C, of judgment. Of judgment. This again here, look at verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. This is speaking of the ruler of this world, the prince of the air, titles given to Satan, meaning that he has been allowed to roam the earth, to seek whom he may devour, to tempt, and to do other things that would distract and take away from the glory of the Father. God has given him this freedom to do so. This one, the prince of the air, the ruler of this world, Satan himself, What I want to take away from this passage, though, is that, yes, he is an adversary we need to be aware of. We've talked about this before, that that Satan is not equal with God. They are not dueling gods in equal power and authority. No, no, God is creator God. Satan was an angel that was created that fell and was cast away. And one day, praise God, according to the book of Revelation, he will be dealt with. But the beauty of this passage is to encourage you, he's already been judged. Do you notice the the tense of these words of judgment? Because the prince of the world is judged, not will be judged one day, but is judged. Again, God can say that because even though Satan is free to roam the earth and to do what he's doing in God's economy, it's already done. He's going to be judged. He has been judged. He's already defeated. He has no power over you. So in this regard, Satan has already been condemned and judged. When Christ died and rose again, he sets free those that are enslaved to Satan naturally and now are sons and daughters of God, a blessed reality. To those who reject Christ, however, their conviction will be more severe. They will be judged with the ruler of the world. So there are those who are in Christ who have been set free from the enslavement to the person of Satan, to his rule and way, which means he just wants sin and debauchery and chaos and no glory to God. And in our natural state in sin, we do not glorify God. We don't bring glory to him in our actions and our attributes and how we live. And so in essence, we're living in a way that would please Satan. But one day there will be a judgment. And the judgment on Satan that's already been confirmed will be applied. Those outside of Christ, those who have rejected Christ, will suffer a judgment. They'll be cast away just as Satan is cast away. But those in Christ will experience the beautiful reality of the fulfillment of their salvation. That what we see now through a glass darkly, we will see face to face when we see our Savior, when we are with him. So again, this judgment here the Spirit convicts of is multifaceted to judge those who are apart from Christ, to share the judgment that those who are in Christ are no longer bound to the ways of Satan or to his lead. So again, what a beautiful reality. I love what Warren Worsby says, and I believe you have this in your notes, uh, in his commentary about this convicting of the Spirit. All that the Spirit does. He says this, There can be no conversion without conviction, and there can be no conviction without, apart from the Spirit of God, using the Word of God and the witness of the child of God. And what a blessed, blessed opportunity we have to share Christ, but also to be used of God to lead others to Christ by just giving them His Word. Everything starts with the mighty work of the Spirit in the work of salvation. So the Spirit is the agent of salvation and that He convicts the world. But also, secondly, on the back of your handout there, He produces Repentance. He produces repentance. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 11. So you're in John. Next book in the New Testament, if you're going towards the back of the New Testament. Acts, chapter 11. Verse 
verse 18. So Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Amazing verse. Amazing, amazing verse. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. They glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, again, this sounds unfamiliar to our words, Gentiles and Jews and so on and so forth. But in the book of Acts... We're seeing this unfolding of the thing called the church. And it starts in Jerusalem. It starts in Israel. And it begins to spread out. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. He says, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And then in the book of Acts, we see that very same commission taking place. To where it starts in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the world to the Gentiles. And we see this conversion happening. And one of the things that was going on is the Jews did not really know if these Gentiles who had pagan backgrounds and all of that really had the same spirit. I mean, do they really know God like we do? Are they really receiving the true gospel? And so here we see God showing through these works and these things that happen in the book of Acts that the spirit of God that indwelt the Jews at the moment of salvation is the same spirit of God that is working in the Gentiles. But the work of the Spirit here is what I want to focus on. This work of repentance. He granted repentance unto life. That means without the repentance that he grants, the only outcome is death. This lines completely up with what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. But the gift of God. And I love that phrase. Is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That when you receive Christ, you have eternal life. But without Christ, there is death. Now that death is not just referring to physical death. Although that is an aspect of a result of sin. Going back to Genesis chapter 3. That death is separation. Which really death is just separation. Our bodies go in the ground. Our souls separate. We are separated from our bodies. That death in Romans 6 is God allowing us to continue in the same separation that we wanted in this life. That I rejected Christ. I didn't want a relationship with him. And so I die in that separated state from God. So God says, fine. Now you can continue in that state separated from me for all of eternity. Because God loves us so much, he does not force his love upon us. He displays it. He communicates it. The whole world knows and can know that Christ died. Christ died openly and publicly. Anyone can come to faith in Christ. But those who reject him will find death. This is an amazing work of the Spirit that not only does he convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, he also produces the work of repentance needed for salvation or eternal life. How does he do this? In your notes there, letter A. He does this through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. 1 Peter 1.12. We're not going to turn there. But 1 Peter 1.12. Preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost. Even the preaching of the gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit, to bring about this work of repentance. One author said it this way, the Spirit is the author and energizer of gospel preaching. I love that. The Spirit is the author and the energizer of the Holy Spirit, or of gospel preaching. Now, I know you think energizer, you think, you know, you guys know the bunny, right? A little bunny. Yeah, some of you already were thinking that, Okay. The energizing work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about an, an igniting of truth in our souls and in our minds. That through gospel preaching, if, if you go back to when you were first saved and you heard the gospel, you couldn't describe, if you really tried to, the work of what was going on in your heart and mind. It was just this unsettled reality of who you were, what your sin brought about, and what was being offered to you in grace. Now, maybe you were younger and you wouldn't clarify it that way. It was a simpler understanding. That's fine. But when I was 16 and I received Christ, I remember sitting in the chapel at Camp Chautauqua in Miamisburg, Ohio, and in the back of the room, towards the back anyway, because that's where you could goof around and not get caught. And I was in the back. And I remember I was holding on to the, the chairs in front of me, and this guy was going on and preaching and just sharing this message. And I, the whole, it, was, it wasn't audible, but it was as close as I've ever been, where the Spirit of God was like, you know you don't have Christ. 
I went to church. I, I prayed prayers. I read the Bible. I was scared to death of, of death. I didn't want to die. I, I didn't know what awaited me. I kept praying. I hope I was good enough. And I remember standing in that room as the invitation was going on. And it was just this thundering pressure in my chest to go, you know you don't know Christ. And you know what that means. I wasn't ignorant of it. I was very aware of the gospel. And it was in that moment that the Spirit of God granted to me the wisdom of repentance to say, I'm turning from this. I'm done. I need him. And so in our lives, that's the Spirit working, drawing us to that. That's the energizing work the Spirit does in gospel preaching. But number two, we have to understand this. It's the preaching of the gospel with the word of God. It's the preaching of the gospel with the word of God. That should be a clear, a clear point to make that we shouldn't have any confusion there. But I know in churches today, this is even confusing. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that word of God is not word like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. That's referring to the person of Christ. Romans ten seventeen is referring to the words of God. The word of God, the actual communication of revelation. And so here we see the word of God is key in understanding the gospel. True converts are produced by the working of the spirit through gospel preaching or proclaiming, not through debate or convincing through human understanding. There is such a push in a lot of churches today to convince people of the need of the gospel through psychology, through personality tests, through all kinds of other avenues to convince them and to debate them into the need of the gospel. It is simple as the spirit of God under gospel preaching, drawing people to repentance. Man, we're so caught up in some churches with market driven demographics. And how do we appeal to this group and that group? And how do we build a crowd? Like, how do we get a crowd of people in church on Sunday? What do I got to say or not say? And then we'll get some surface converts that profess to believe, but maybe really don't even know what they're doing. And the Spirit works through gospel preaching through the Word of God. That is how we are drawn to repentance. This repentance also is working by the gospel preaching through the Word of God, letter B, unto the regeneration of the believer. Unto the regeneration of the believer. John chapter 3 and verse 5. So you're in Acts. Go back one book to John. John chapter 3, verse 5. What do we mean by this regeneration of the believer? We are almost out of time. So we'll read this and then wrap it up. John chapter 3 and verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. This is the conversation with Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is that being born again that Jesus spoke about. That our natural birth, we were born in sin, with a sin nature. But when we receive the gift of salvation through gospel preaching by the work of the Spirit to draw us unto that repentance, we are regenerated. We are born again. We are given new life. What does Paul say? You are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because you've been regenerated. You've been given new life. Number one in your notes, the Spirit gives life to those that have repented and trusted in Christ. Repented means, again, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. To turn from sin. To call sin what it is. It's not just a mistake. It's sin. We turn from sin. We, we're despised by it. it. It bothers us at a deeper level. We're not just grieved we got caught. We're not just upset that we feel bad. The Bible says we mourn our sin. Like the loss of a loved one, we are broken hearted when we realize by the work of the Spirit the weight of our sin and what it costs. We turn from that sin and we turn to Christ. We are given new life. One author said it well when he said this, Regeneration is a radical change. Just as our physical birth resulted in a new individual entering the earthly realm, our spiritual birth results in a new person entering the heavenly realm. I believe you have this in your notes, and so I'll give these to you. We are renewed, meaning we've been renewed. We are in the state of, we've been renewed, we've been regenerated, and we're renewed present tense, Titus 3.5. 
and continue to be renewed. Romans 12.2, by the Spirit. We've been regenerated. We've been given a new life. We've been renewed in the Spirit. But that renewing continues on as we are not conformed to this world, but conformed to the things of God by the working of the Spirit. Tim Challies, a pastor and author, spoke to this renewing of the Spirit when he says this. The Spirit's task is to renew our hearts continually and to empower us to fight for the goal of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If we are to be a people of discernment, we need to begin our pursuit by crying out to the Spirit and asking Him to help and guide us as we seek after discernment, discerning what the Word of God says we should be, who we should be, how we should live. How do we do that? We do that by the renewing work of the Spirit in our minds. So the Spirit gives life. Also, number two, we have communion with God through Christ by the Spirit. This new life brings communion with God. Romans chapter 8 speaks to this. Hebrews speaks to this. Just in every level, the book of Hebrews reminds us how Jesus and being in Christ is better. 1 John speaks to this reality. The book of James speaks to this reality. And I don't think, give us a verse. I would encourage you, go look at those chapters or those books and just see the communion that we have with God because of the Spirit. All of these speak to the fellowship we have with God in Christ. We have been born again by the Spirit and we draw near to God with no fear of our sin because we are made new. I don't fear the weight and judgment of sin because I'm a new creature. My sins are forgiven. Next week, we're going to speak more to the continuing work of the Spirit in our lives and what that looks like for the life of the believer. But I want to wrap up this morning by asking and encouraging you to realize that it is the Spirit of God that convicted you, to, that drew you unto repentance, that you might receive Christ as your Savior. It was not your own doing. You did not come to Christ on your own. It was the work of the Spirit. We have been given life in the Spirit, and we can walk or be active in the Spirit. Ephesians makes that clear to us, Ephesians chapter 5. And when we walk in the Spirit, what will be the result? It will bring peace and joy, no matter what circumstances we face in this world. So let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud, but just for your application. Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you spending time with Him in His Word? Do you desire to think biblically about the decisions you make, situations you face? If not, you can start right now, not by a magic prayer, but by a simple reality that he drew you unto repentance, unto salvation, gave you a new life, communion with God. You have all you need to walk with Christ. And so begin walking with Christ today. I know you're saved and you know Christ, but are you actively pursuing the things of God? Are you spending time in his word? How do we endure things in this world that happen? Tragedies like what happened in Texas. How do we endure that? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, first of all, we realize that this is a fallen world. And we just spoke about this. Fallen world where, where sinful and fallen people do horrible things to one another. It's a tragedy, it's heartbreaking, and it's unbearable to think about what those parents are going through. But God has not left his throne. God has not ceased to be God. And my prayer is that he's drawing families in that community to Christ. But how do you handle those situations you come across? I promise you, if you're spending time in his word, allowing the Spirit, to God, the Spirit of God to illuminate your mind and draw you into that communion, you will find yourself able. I'm not saying you're going to have all the answers because you're not. I have lots of questions and I don't have answers to them all. But you'll find peace and joy even in the midst of chaos. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its guidance and its direction in our lives. Father, we pray that you'd help us to realize the amazing gift of the Spirit. That salvation was not something we earned or merited on our own favor, but it was a gift that you gave to us. That by the working of the Spirit, you convicted us of our sin, of your righteousness, of the judgment. You drew us unto repentance by gospel preaching through the Word. 
that we might be made new, regenerated, given new life and communion with you. Father, I pray if nothing else that we will just praise you this morning for that. We had nothing to offer, but you gave everything for us. So I pray we'd glorify you because of that. Thank you for giving us the repentance needed unto life eternal. And so, Father, as we go through this morning responding to what you're doing, I pray that you would draw those that are believers to really evaluate their walk with you. Thank you for the communion they have with you, the new life you've given to them, that they would worship and honor you. Father, for those that don't know Christ, I pray that they would come to know you because it is truly the only way unto salvation is through Christ. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We don't know what's going to happen after we leave this place. This moment you've given to us. I pray that they would come to know you, repenting of their sins, trusting in Christ, believing, and surrendering to you that they might find eternal life. Father, we need you this morning. Work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you respond to what God is doing as he is leading you this morning? Whether you want to come in praise and worship him for the gift of salvation, the work of the Spirit, or whether you want to come to know Christ. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as we sing?